This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Alexis Shotwell. And since you're definitely going to make big mistakes. It's much better to be one of many, many, many white people who are good enough, doing our best, definitely going to mess up, but are going to stick around and be available for repair and further responsibility. Alexis Shotwell's work focuses on complexity, complicity, and collective transformation. A professor at Carleton University on unceded Algonquin land, she is the co-investigator for the AIDS Activist History Project and the author of Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender, and Implicit Understanding, and Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us today on For the Wild. I really look forward to speaking with you and diving into some of these uh, complex and nuanced topics. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Mm-hmm. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to discuss the ways in which your work finds impurity and imperfection as fecund ground for political, social, as well as personal and collective transformation. Now, I'm particularly struck by this notion because of the ways that perfectionism and purity are inextricably wound up in white supremacy culture. Now, to provide some needful grounding, I want to raise an article titled Divorcing White Supremacy Culture by Tema Okun, a facilitator of long-term anti-racism and anti-oppression work, Mm -hmm. wherein Okun identifies perfectionism, individualism, and either-or thinking as key tenets of white supremacy culture. So given this, I wonder if you could expound on the relatedness of conceptions of purity and whiteness, and then speak to the utility of our imperfection and how we harness it for collective power. Yeah, that's a beautiful and complicated question. So I think, yeah, people are often really surprised to think about the ways that purity culture is an expression of white supremacism. And so one thing that I think we can start with is just asking what whiteness is, you know, what it what it has been historically. And uh, when we look at that, there's something really significant about the particular formations of 
um, what we call racial formation. So the particular way that race came to be delimited, articulated, firmed up uh, as part of the project of colonization. And I'm situated in North America, but we can see the uh, ripples and the intellectual formation of whiteness moving across the Atlantic, across the globe as part of the colonial project. So what that was in some real way was an, an attempt to square the insurgent and liberatory idea that all people have worth and dignity that was coming out of the revolutionary politics of the enlightenment to square that sense, right? That everyone has dignity and anyone can be someone who learns and transforms and leads with uh, the fact of colonizing nations wanting to and enacting genocide, enslavement, uh, land theft, and so on. So the initial way that that was organized intellectually was to make a split, make a difference between people who would be considered human persons and everyone else who could be exploited, used, subjugated. And of course, now when we look at this, we also see the ways that this when we think about people, we don't need to just think about human people. We can think also about the tendency and impulse that this initiated and that it sustains in extracting and devastating uh, the natural world, ecosystems, and what we sometimes think of as non-human persons, right? So to say there's a difference between the ones that we need to consider and hold in view and respect their dignity and everyone else who we get to use up. That's the initial kind of an initial impulse of whiteness as we're living it now. So that impulse is always splitting and it's always concerned about contamination. It's always concerned, especially about contamination of lineage or blood. It's concerned about the ways that um, things can be inherited. And so it comes to be a whole governing modality that is about keeping things pure. And you know, we, we see this continue in white supremacist logics and rationales today in eugenicist moods and moves that turn toward an idea of purity, purity of blood and purity of being. And of course, aside from all the violence that that impulse has curated and promulgated, the move toward purity is always going to fail because the world is just not like that. There is no such thing as racial purity. There is no delineation between different kinds of humans that is biologically written. And as we learn more and more, and as we deepen our attention, it turns out there's no delineation that we can really hold firm between humans and uh, non-humans who also care and are curious and play and think about the future. 
So I can say some things about how this shows up in our personal experience, which most people don't, don't think about that quality of the purity move as something that is showing up in their own pursuit of perfection. But would you like me to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would love that. Thank you. Okay. So a lot of the time, the way that we experience this is we think that in order to do anything, we have to do it perfectly. In order to have standing to do something, we have to do it perfectly. So that might seem a really long way away from colonialism and enslavement and border militarism and so on. But the way that that purity impulse is actually the same is it's supposing that there is something that really exists that can be achieved. And so one part of that is a framing of the activity that we're doing as something that's possible to close off from the complexity and the interconnectedness of the world. So the only way that you actually have, you know, purity is a, it's a myth, it's a lie. And the only way that you can even imagine that it exists is if you're imagining yourself as not embedded and connected to the world and to other people. As soon as you breathe, as soon as you take a sip of water, as soon as you be in any kind of relationship, you're implicated in everything that's happening. It doesn't mean you're responsible for everything. There's definitely people who are responsible for horrible things that are happening. But we all inherit the whole history of what has shaped our worlds and we're, we're connected to the whole thing. So if we're trying to, for example, I'm a white person, I think a lot about whiteness. So if I'm trying to be responsible and get everything right about whiteness, I will inevitably mess up because there's not a way for me to be a white person and not be inheriting the legacies of all of those violences. And there's also not a way for me to be a white person and not be benefiting from them. So if I aim for perfection and purity, even as a leftist, right? If I aim for perfection and for never messing up, you know, for never getting canceled, I'm always gonna miss that goal because it's not possible. There's no such thing as being pure. So the place that I care about this most, I think, is in our politics, right? Is if we're trying to be perfect in our politics, the only thing that we'll do is never do anything. Um, because as soon as we do anything, we're gonna make mistakes. And I have to say that as I've thought about imperfection as a ground, one of the things that has really helped me is also noticing how releasing that idea eases a whole bunch of other stuff in our personal lives. So it's not just political, I think, that we should let go of that idea of perfection. It's also, it's also personal. It's, it's how we could live in a more gentle way with ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. oh, gosh, I'm with you there. I've been definitely thinking a lot about that 
strain for perfection in myself and how detrimental that is and how much internal pain that's caused and and where that idea of perfection even came from who conditioned me like that was this it doesn't feel like it was nature that put these mm-hmm. ideas of perfection in my head and i think also there's the cancel culture but there's also sometimes this self-righteousness that comes out when people strive for perfection or purity it's maybe it's like the pain of being complicit and implicated is is so intense that instead people go to the other side of the spectrum of self-righteousness to maybe defend themselves from that pain of complicity i've been thinking about that lately how we all metabolize and acknowledge our complicity and lack of purity and how that relates to being a good person or you know it's like there's so much there's so much in this and i want to yeah. keep going i wanted to bring up in your book against purity living ethically in compromised times you write personal purity is simultaneously inadequate impossible and politically dangerous for shared projects of living on earth end quote so you started to touch on this but i would love if you could speak about how personal purity actually bifurcates us from collective thinking and walk us through a process of how we reframe neoliberal conceptions of the self into broader expansive understandings of collectivity and maybe a second part you know in your view how might this reframing be done in a way that does not extract or appropriate indigenous epistemologies and worldviews that are fundamentally relational yeah well maybe i'll start with that that part because many of us now are trying to be in better relation with indigenous lifeways and land uh, and recognizing that we live on stolen land in this continent and that we're not in good relation with the land or the people who have cared for it historically and who would care for it again if they were given the opportunity as a a practice of their responsibility. So I see a lot of us when we start thinking about interdependence and about being in good relation with other people and land, turning toward indigenous teachings and people. And for settlers, who are differentially positioned, right? So there are white settlers like me who have moved across nation state boundaries without the permission or you know, blessing, particularly of the people whose place I came to live on. And there's also settlers of color who were brought to this continent, not, you know, they didn't choose it. And people who are currently being displaced because of rapacious capitalism, whose migration and movement is um, you know, also not chosen in any direct way. So there's lots of different ways that we who live here who are not indigenous might try to be in relation with these places, thinking with and in response to indigenous practices of relationality. Mm. So one way that that works and that is really great is we might begin to have 
less of a sense that the point is for us individual people to be correct and sort of like certified on the right side because a lot of those teachings and just people are really organized around what does interdependence look like and what do ongoing relations of responsibility feel like what's the practice of those so there's like nothing bad about listening to indigenous people and trying to have those relationships relations of responsibility but one of the things that tends to happen is white settlers in particular might try to become indigenous in one way or another so in the part of north america where i live this is happening where people are explicitly just discovering, you know, pretending that they're native because they've found some ancestors 14 generations ago. And that's a, that's a kind of identity theft that is very violent. Also though, we might just try to fold, fold in, you know, and, and give up the particular painful space of being part of settler society and the, the sort of web of implication that that puts us in. So the way to do this, these relations of responsibility without either appropriating indigenous spiritual traditions or identity, pretending to be indigenous, or like kind of, yeah, folding over actually our own capacity to be in dignified relation is to find our own ground, right? Which is to find the threads of response and capacities for responsibility that actually we have. So I've come to think that at every point that any of us feel a kind of tug of wanting to divest ourselves completely of settler history and its violences, that those places, those sites of complicity are really good places for us to start to transform complicity and implication into responsibility and reciprocal care. So wherever we notice something where we're like, I do not want the world to be like this. And I feel awful that I'm implicated in it. That's a place where we can start, we can turn toward that feeling and start asking what collective work is already happening there. So that's a sort of heuristic, right? When you feel a sense of horror that there's a mine going in near where you live and it's going to poison the river and the people who are authorizing it are settlers who are ignoring indigenous treaties and land responsibilities. And they're saying it's for the benefit of settlers like me and maybe settlers like you. That's a good place to start fighting, to start calling relations of responsibility into being to say no. Um, so it's a heuristic. When you feel uncomfortable, turn, turn toward it and see where you might fight. And then it's a kind of medicine uh, for counter-individualism 
Um, and for resisting what, yeah, you know, I think of as self-righteousness that is based on purity. So often when you start doing work, you know, when you start working together with people, there's an impulse to be like the good, you know, the good white person who is totally down and has everything together. But a little bit often that happens in a mode where there can only be one. And since you're definitely gonna make big mistakes, it's much better to be one of many, many, many white people who are good enough, doing our best, definitely going to mess up, but are gonna stick around and be available for repair and further responsibility. So that's kind of the best way that I've thought about the practice of not trying to be personally perfect and always correct. Um, it's those two ways, right? Forget the feeling you're gasping You're holding on, you're grasping For something you barely remember lasting Past a few breaths in the morning time Before the aches, the pain, the stress, the grease, the grind Swallowed up in my colonized mind Bomb blasts and newscasts and our war crimes Oh, they find new homes in our minds I find I can't breathe, can't hear, oh, I'm blind I'm blind to the garden waiting just beyond my weaponized worry got me choking on colonial laws. I cower in the endless maze of the machine, hoping one day I can liberate, but I can barely hear the words of the wind as she says, as she says, as she says. Come back to the garden, child of mine. Come back to the garden, child of mine. Come back to the garden. Yeah, there's definitely a few people in my life coming to mind <laughs> as and of course myself too in my own way is but just really playing out what you're saying and in, in my memories of just yeah. moments of conversations with intimate loved ones of how do we show up in this time and what is it to be a good person, a good white person, a good earthling somebody who cares, somebody who protects. It's interesting to consider what leads us to choose these different paths of relating to these issues. Those of us who choose to be comfortable in our imperfection or those of us who choose this type of desire for purity and perfection and self-righteousness and how our wounds probably inform which path we go down with how we relate to these times and also what stops us at moments from breaking through that clinging to purity in ourselves. I don't know if you could speak to that at all or 
what your thoughts are there. I mean, you know, some of the time I feel really moved actually when I notice myself clinging to purity or I see someone else having that struggle because one of the things that it signals is we really wish that it could be better. Like we've, we really, really want the world to, we really want to help the world. So it's actually, we could see it and say, this is a beautiful impulse. You know, this is, it's wonderful that you want to do it, do it right. So if we meet that impulse in ourself with that quality of curiosity and kindness, we might be better able to meet it in others with that same quality too. So seeing like, oh, you want to get this right. I see that. Well, the definite and sure and certain way to get this wrong is to spend a lot of time identifying how everyone else is getting it wrong, <laughs> you know, and how you're getting it right. Or to, to be, you know, monitoring your words constantly and trying to never put a foot wrong. And um, that actually is a recipe for demobilization and decollectivization. And it's a, it's a way to despair. So the impulse is really good. The impulse is really like, I want to help. But the, the fact that that impulse has been co-opted by, you know, a Puritan ethic that continues to inform so much of our activist work in North America to turn that toward individual perfectionism is just a terrible mistake. So <clears throat> I think one question is when we notice ourselves doing that, trying to identify the people who are wrong and how we're right because we can see that they're wrong, we can look and say, what are you scared of here? You know, And usually we're scared that we're gonna really mess something up or we're going to shame ourselves before people that we care about or we're going to be cast out of communities that we want to be in, or we're going to mess up something that we really don't want to mess up. And those are all really, those are all good impulses to, to try to take care of each other, to try to get things right. So as soon as we notice that tightening, you know, the hardening of self-righteousness, I think some of the time what's helpful for me actually is to turn toward righteousness instead of self-righteousness. So righteousness, many people don't agree with me about this, so it might not work, right? It, it might not play. There might be some other affect I need to, to find. But it's basically, when I've looked at people who've stayed involved in social movements and stayed involved in struggles for the earth for a long time, they have this steady quality and unflappability. They've usually made lots of mistakes. Really, the ones who have stayed in, who you still want to talk to, you know, who are still um, showing up at meetings and a pleasure to be around, they have a quality of curiosity. And they know some things that have worked in their life, but they're not positive that those things are going to work in this particular struggle or in this particular group formation. So they have a a vibe that is really showing up for the long haul, staying involved, and not collapsing when they make a mistake. They have an orientation toward repair 
and um, responsiveness and a sense that things don't have to stay the same. They don't have to stay this way. And when we talk about repair, it's not like we're, there's a beautiful book by a philosopher named Elizabeth Spellman about repair. And she says, you're not trying to return something to a previous state. There's lots of things that the, the brokenness is just there from the beginning, right? So, or we can't, we can't ever go back. We can't return things to a, a different, a previous state. All we can do is move things into some future state. So repairing brokenness can be um, not a return, but a move forward. And if we have good relations with others who we're struggling with alongside shoulder to shoulder about things that we care about, the only way to do that over the long term is to build in that quality of asking, how, how can we look at the broken relations that we're in, that we've entered into just because we've been born into this world in this moment? How can we enter into those relationships and repair them? And when we hurt each other or we make mistakes or we misstep, how is that work of repair also part of our project of caring for this world and making it a place where more, more people and more beings can flourish? So once we take that attitude that we're People are going to make mistakes and we'll have to figure out how to repair relations with them. And we're going to make mistakes and we'll have to figure out how to repair the relations we've harmed in those. If we center that in our work, that changes the, changes the, changes the practice. And it means that we don't just leave <laughs> if we mess up. And it also means that when other people mess up, we don't just expel them until we have just a smaller and smaller group of the people who haven't messed up yet. You know, that's, that's a sure way to kill a movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Repair is something that I've been learning and practicing more and more. And I always find it's so much scarier before I just start. And mm -hmm. What I find so beautiful about repair and so healing is vulnerability. And once I can be vulnerable with others and I see that vulnerability come out in them, it's not that the healing becomes uncomplicated, but it feels possible, I think, for me at that point when we can just let go of those, whatever it is that's holding us from really connection, I think, is... Uh, what I think yeah. is broken and what really we all want. And if we can go into things knowing that hurt will happen, but it's how we stick with it and not abandon each other or ourselves. It's whew, a lifelong lesson that, that seems to be something that is always present. And I, I want to stick with this notion of complicity and complexity a bit more and you address both of these topics in your forthcoming book collecting our people wherein you write quote 
We face multiple wicked problems that we cannot solve alone. Complex things like global warming, systemic racism, and chemical pollution. This book is about how we get together to solve big problems in which we are complicit, end quote. And then you continue, quote, but if we are complicit, we are not equally responsible. The harms embedded in social and material relations of living are unevenly distributed. Some people benefit from those harms, others bear their effects. There is no homogenous we, only groups of people clustered in various ways through choice or chance, positioned in history and moving together toward an uncertain future, end quote. So I'm wondering if you could flesh out for listeners this idea that there is no place outside of complicity and that each of us is profoundly impacted by the complexity of social location, relative privilege, and subjugation. Yeah, I so... Sometimes it's easier to think about implication than complicity. Complicity might have a feeling like I'm saying everyone's done something wrong. And really what I mean to be saying is we're all connected and we don't get to choose it. So so just by being alive right now on this earth, we're connected to things that if we really looked at it, we would say, I I don't want this to be like that. So that's about, that's about, I mean, gosh, just, you know, anything you look at, it's, there's something when you pull on any strand in it, there's something that you're like, I would rather if it wasn't like that. Right. So the, the right really likes to say to anyone who is advocating for solar power, well, but look at the mining practices that are required to make solar panels. So, I mean, anyone who's been in an argument with a, anyone who's said something about like climate change or environmental devastation uh, with a relative or a coworker or a friend who is on the more conservative end has probably had one of these conversations. Like you say you are against climate change, but there you are, you know, taking a plane or, and I think all of us, it's, you know, it's nourishing actually to, to think about like, how can we, how can we actually perceive better the points of attachment that we have to these sites that we wish were otherwise. And that's one of the things that I'm, I think really is a a way for us to start, right? If we, if we are like, I want a solar panel, but I don't want children mining it and enormous environmental devastation. What is what, what things might we step into? What things might we prioritize in our, in our work? So saying that we're all connected to things that we think should be otherwise is really just a way to say, all of us have some point of attachment for something that we could work on, that we could care about, that would start to move this world in a direction that would produce more possibility for more of us to live and flourish. But of course, not all of us are equally responsible. So there are people who are making decisions that will vastly immiserate 
masses and masses of people that will devastate ecosystems, that will kill rivers, that are killing the planet. So we're not equally responsible. And it's good for us to identify our enemies, the people who are making it be the case that we are implicated in truly horrific things because they want to make money. Um, so that's when I say we're all implicated, we're all complicit, but we're not equally responsible. Um, that's, that's what I mean, right? We can have a clear-eyed understanding that there are people who are making these decisions, they could make different decisions. And if we're generous, we could help them make different decisions. Now, thinking about this move, right? So I was saying purity politics is always gonna be individual. Like the, the illusion of purity relies on the idea that we could be separate and not complicit and not implicated. So resisting purity politics is going to always require us to resist individualism. And so this comes back to the question about neoliberalism that you asked earlier that I never answered. Um, we can't solve these problems just by sheer acts of will and trying really, really hard to recycle everything. We can't solve them by going off grid, you know, in any relevant way, right? We're still going to be involved in the world, touching the world, making an impact on the world. So if we think about that, then we can say um, the only way we're going to solve these big problems is by organizing with other people, by getting together with other people, which again is always going to it's always gonna mean that we make mistakes or we are really grumpy. We don't like, we don't wanna organize with that person. They're so irritating when they talk all the time in a meeting, like all those things are gonna happen. As soon as you're organizing with other people, they are irritating, you make mistakes, it's uncomfortable. But it's also joyful because it's the only way to actually address the things that matter to us. So in this book that I'm working on, I've been really thinking about these different ways that we can get together with other people and, and what they look like and how they are. Do you want me to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, please. So, so one way is just, it's just on the level of like actually friendship. So we're really taught in this world that the only kinds of sustaining relationships that we should have should be with maybe our sort of nuclear family of origin, which is one of the myths of neoliberalism, that the only people that will take care of you are your family. That's a, that's a lie. And when we maybe leave our family of origin, we're supposed to find dyadic, monogamous, romantic relationships that will fulfill us in every way. So as everyone knows, neither of these things work like that. And, and both of them have actually a kind of great fear of the power of friendship. So one way to get together with others is to be friends and to be friends in the mode that the friends that you have call out to you in their being a kind of respect for what philosophers think of as your best self. So the, the you that you are when you feel most yourself, when you have uh, joy and no shame 
and you feel like you're filling yourself to the edges of your skin. And you're also stretching into something that you can't predict yet. And this can be, you know, humans can do this. Companion animals can be friends to us in this way. Places can be friends. You can befriend a mountain or a river. It can do this for you. So that's a kind of personal feeling. And I just, I think we should proliferate more friendship like that. But that's a different and not necessarily this, you know, doesn't even necessarily come into doing political work with people. So having comrades in struggle or fellow travelers, this is the way that you build people power with people who you don't even necessarily like, um, but you are on the same side of a relevant struggle and you trust them to show up and work with you to help something change. Um, so this is another kind of relationship that is um, not nourished. It, you know, movements have been on their back foot for a long time now, and many people don't have the experience of being in a collective. So forming collectives is a skill that we can have. We can have collectives that are like intentional and formal, um, where you have social harm reduction practices, where you have ways of rotating roles so that fixed hierarchies don't structure those. You can have temporary collectives, you can have, so I'm just a big fan of people actually just making collectives, having friends, making collectives. And then the third kind of relationship that I'm really thinking about is the relationship of naming our enemies and opposing them. Um, so in my town right now, there's a lot of um, white supremacists organizing and coming out to say, I am opposing you because I am white and you claim to speak for me is another form of relationship. Um, opposition is a relationship. So when we directly name the thing that we are fighting, uh, we can begin to engage in opposition. And that doesn't mean that we have to be mean or horrific, but we have to actually be able to stand against things. And sometimes it helps once you've got your, you know, your mushroom friends and your mountain friends and your human friends and your animal friends to, and your comrades who are standing with them too. Um, it helps to think about that work of opposition as something where they're, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with you or um, paw to shoulder. And, uh, and you sort of have a duty to, to respect their dignity by opposing the thing that's killing them. So those are three forms of relationship that fight individualism, but also that we need in order to make big change at the scale we need to make it right now if we're gonna survive on this planet. I am a great ship, I'm a beast of the sea I travel both night and day The songs I sing are the ones of the grey And they echo for miles around A slow migration is the only way I follow the ones before 
I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just taking it all in and I'm wanting to expand on this notion of friendship and comradeship and relations, but also on this understanding of our implication in white supremacy and settler colonialism and capitalism. And I'd like to reference your essay, Claiming Bad Kin, in which you propose, quote, I argue for a specific form of responding to whiteness that involves white settlers claiming rather than disavowing our connection to white supremacist people and social relations. I see at least three different roles we white people can take up in reclaiming our kin as friends, comrades, and enemies, end quote. So could you elaborate on this methodology, perhaps through even a personal account, of claiming bad kin at sites of friendship, comradeship, and relations with those perceived as our enemies. Yeah. So thinking about whiteness, I think is really generous for thinking with these relations because it's so hard. So the ways that the friend relation helps us, well, I'll just say something first about claiming bad kin. So often white people, we do a good job claiming and referencing the ancestors we have who maybe fought slavery or opposed in the Canadian context residential schools. We sometimes will look to inspiration to people who, who fought, right? Who were on the side of, of good as we, you know, as we identify it. And sometimes even we'll say, I'm, you know, I'm nothing like those bad white people. So one part of claiming bad kin is, is just recognizing that also we inherit people who were actively engaged in enslavement and colonizing projects um, that we, many of us have inherited the benefits of those systems or currently benefit from them. So claiming bad kin is partially that actual work of like, who in our family do we need to take responsibility for? Like in our, our bloodline, you know, our particular family narrative, our particular family tree, if we know it. But claiming bad kin also for me comes from listening to indigenous feminists who have talked about that move that white people do to say that they're not really white and to say, oh, I'm Cherokee, I'm, you know, different thing. And one of the things that people like Kim Talbert and Cersei Strom say is, it doesn't matter actually what, what you claim about your relations and your identity. What matters is who claims you, who, who says you're part of them. And when I started really looking at that, I realized that white supremacists claim me. So they're doing what they're doing to benefit the white race, to benefit white people. And they're trying to build that world. And as I've been walking around my city this weekend, the racialized people I know are targeted by these folks who are in town and I'm not. So they're claiming me as one of them. They're claiming me as kin. So thinking about how I can oppose that 
you know, and name that move as a move that I'm against. Uh, various things can happen, right? So that can be showing up for the people who are targeted by white supremacists organizing in my town. It can be putting my my body and my face between them and someone they're targeting. It can be using my political position to leverage certain things because of the ways that I'm listened to. So there's lots of ways that opposition can be that kind of relation. Comradeship in fighting whiteness or recognizing white complicity is often gonna be in these more collective spaces, asking how groups that we're involved in can take better or different responsibility for the things that we're implicated in, especially as regards whiteness. So the comradeship part really asks us what kinds of relationships is this group participating in and building that will transform whiteness and abolish uh, white supremacism? How, how is this group calling each other and calling ourselves into um, practices of responsibility and transformation collectively? And, and what forms of coalition might we build that can leverage more power against, against white supremacy? And then friendship. So some of the time this is people who are, white people who have friends who are racialized sometimes have the really incredibly generous space where the racialized friend will say, this thing that you did was really not okay. Um, that was a racist thing to say, or the way you behaved was, was because you're white and it hurt me or I noticed it. So sometimes we have racialized friends who will do that very hard friend work for us as a, and it's always a sign that they actually care about us and wanna be in relation, care enough to do that. Um, we also can do that for each other. White people can do that for each other. We can say, I noticed this happen, or I noticed you spoke about this person in this way, or I know you don't wanna be like this in the world. And those conversations also are really hard. But if we're friends with each other, we actually, no one, no one wants to be awful, <laughs> you know? But the only way that we transform is through relation. So those spaces are the ways that we can shift how we're, how we're living whiteness, I think. And often they're all entangled. They're all together. You know, as soon as you're working with a group, you're usually identifying something you want to change and you have a tactic for how you want to change it. And you have people you're targeting whose minds you want to change or whose act actions you want to shut down, whether they change their mind or not. You have comrades, you know, you have people who are friends who are calling you in or calling you out. So it's messy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. And it's messy and so worth it because we can't escape it. There's no perfect place to be in our minds or in this world at this time, maybe ever. So I appreciate just looking at it 
honestly and facing sometimes our fears or our discomfort to be with what is and learn how to repair. Yeah. As we come to a close, I did want to bring up something that I've heard mentioned a few times and and that's about the political mm-hmm. sphere. And your book Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender and Implicit Understanding describes how the unspoken, intimate, nuanced and implicit knowledges within each of us hold the potential to contribute to transformation. So could you speak to this relationship between how our intimate experiences of our minds and our workings are actually deeply political and can influence politics on a mass scale? Yeah, no one ever asks me about knowing otherwise. That's so lovely. Yeah, I mean, this also came out of doing doing work with with white anti-racism training and and recognizing how often, I mean, I'm a teacher, you know, that's what I that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I do. And recognizing how often when we're learning and teaching about systems of oppression and injustice and harm, we give each other better facts, you know, and we try to sort of address how people are wrong or they have a bad understanding. But actually so much of what's happening around race and around everything, gender and disability and the environment is it's not about our concepts. It's, it's about our feelings and our implicit understandings, the things that we just don't even put into words because they seem so obvious to us and our bodies, how our bodies respond to things. So, so beginning to think about that whole network of things, our feelings, our bodies, our, our common sense presuppositions, the way that the world has positioned us to be positioned toward each other and toward the world, that whole bundle is implicit understanding. And that's something that we, we have. Uh, it, it just is part of our, our being. And it's on that level often that we're transformed and that we help each other transform. So when I'm thinking about this this orientation toward movement spaces as a, an orientation of constitutive imperfection and repair, really that comes out of that work and that book about recognizing that most of what we're doing politically isn't about having a reasonable argument with someone. It's about this sort of mush, you know, that is complicated and rich and entangled and incoherent it's like internally contradictory that all of us have that stuff and it's bumping into each other right so being able to actually like drop down into the level of the body and the feeling and taking seriously that that is a place where politics is happening is so valuable for us to be able to see like, oh, is my drive for perfection and always being right, you know, just a fear that I'll be shamed, you know, is my, is my feeling of elation here, you know, uh, attuning me to something that I want to work on more, right? So having, having some sense of trust in that inner being and 
and that that way that we are and that way that we know can actually guide us is sounds very you know kind of woo woo a little bit but actually I think it's kind of the only way that any social movement has ever really flourished right like building a space where we collectively can be with our messy mushy you know imperfect innards that's that's the thing that's really nice about being in a collective space organizing with people that all of that is welcome your whole self is there and it's present and this comes back to you know that impulse to cut off one form of being from another and to say these people are white and they should get everything and they're full persons and everyone else is extractable that's also part of a move that thinks we should just think about the concept and our heads and reason in a particular mode. But when we dig down into it, we're like, there's no such thing as reason without feeling and without the body. And also that place, our implicit knowledge might need to be, um, might need to be cared for and it might need to learn, right? It might be wrong about some things. So racism happens so much in that, in that area, right? In that whole sphere of our experience. And it, it needs to transform, you know? And that's not gonna happen just by making a better argument. So yeah, attending to the implicit, so important. Yes, it really is. And I'm hoping that each of us can just hear your words and let them sink in and find ways to embody this knowledge and allow it to help us navigate these times. So thank you so much, Alexis, for spending this time with us and just going into all these crevices that we went into. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really great. Mm. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today is by Daniel Cherniski and Anne Carol Mitchell. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, and Julia Jackson.